What is up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 131. Today, we're going to be talking about the disappearance of Johnny Gosh. This is a case that we've wanted to cover for a while now. I'm not sure why we're just now getting around to it, but it's better about late time. than never. Yeah. Um, this is a huge case. It's been so highly requested from you guys for us to talk about this. I have done a video on it, but I know everyone wants Josh's point of view on it as well. Um, and it is just really interesting to me. I don't know why this case gets me so much, but it's just, it's so fascinating. Well, I think there's a lot of factors for why, you know, so many people are intrigued by it is Mm -hmm. because a lot of people believe that Johnny Gosh is still out there and there's a lot of mystery surrounding, you know, could it be this person or that person, or, you know, maybe he's just in hiding. There's a lot of different, I guess, intriguing factors about this case that Mm -hmm. just draws people in and internet sluice, you know, everybody wants Mm -hmm. to try to figure out where's Johnny Gosh or, you know, who is Johnny Gosh if he's assuming another identity or something like that. Mm -hmm. This case is definitely one of the most famous missing persons cases in history in the United States for sure and probably throughout the world because not only did it really change, you know, the way that police handle missing persons cases, especially dealing with a child. And it also led to the creation of NETMEC, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Which is huge. Mm -hmm. It's huge that... That was created by Noreen Gosh, Johnny's mom. So we'll explain all of that. Um, I think you guys will find this really interesting. And we're actually dedicating the entire episode to this case because it's such a big case. And also because there's not much going on in the news right now when we're recording this other than the United States is like on fire uh, between California, Oregon, now Colorado, where we live, has had a lot of fires, like 50% of the state or something is experiencing fires and snow. It's just yeah. been a weird time weather-wise. Yeah, and it's just like... That's really what's going on lately. Yeah, and it just feels like after a while, you know, you start saying the same things over and over again and start covering the same stories. It's like, it just keeps happening, so... Yeah, there wasn't... There was a few, like, updates, but we decided to skip it this week and just focus on the case because we didn't think there was anything that we could really add to the current conversation in the world. And and we're tackling an absolutely massive issue here. We're talking about human Mm -hmm. trafficking, Mm -hmm. uh, child trafficking... And so there's just so much to try to wrap your head around with this topic, just in general, that we're like, we got to, we got to dive really deep into this. So no intros today. Uh, Our episode is brought to you by Tushy, HelloFresh, Native, ExpressVPN, and Upstart, uh, which is awesome because this episode will probably get completely shut down on YouTube. Hopefully it doesn't get removed (laughs) even uh, because they do not like this topic of human trafficking on YouTube. So, Mm -mm. (laughs) and it makes promoting thorn really hard which if you don't follow my channel i do a lot of work promoting thorn which is a organization that's working to stop human trafficking mainly of children online and exploitive pictures and videos and stuff like that through technology through technology they're leveraging technology Mm -hmm. that allows basically all of these internet service providers and uh, search Mm -hmm. engines and things like that to help deter people away from going into those dark places on the internet where you can find that stuff um, and then shutting it down as well. It's a tool for law enforcement mm-hmm. agencies across the country. Uh, it's really groundbreaking stuff, actually. And it's really hard on YouTube, though, to talk about it. Because every time I go to try to raise money or do a campaign of any type for it, it gets demonetized or sometimes removed. Yeah, which is you know? which is really hard because this is one of those issues that I think gets 
pushed, you know, it does it makes people into the shadows where people, you know, don't know about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's probably a reason for that. Uh, you know, there's probably a reason why they don't put it out here in the forefront. I mean, obviously a lot of people yeah. are scared of it, but yeah, totally. It's kind of hidden. I agree with that. But I also think, yeah, it is people. It's very scary. It's hard to wrap your mind around how many people are being trafficked and how many, like what that would be like to be owned and to be forced to do things, right. terrible things. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of, you know, human trafficking is, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons for why people are trafficked. It's not always for sexual exploitation. There's not always just, you know, labor, often, you know, slavery, yeah. things like that. Servitude. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different reasons, but what's interesting is that currently 27% of human trafficking is children. So 27%, that's, that's a huge, huge number uh, of children that are being exploited and being trafficked throughout the world. And a lot of people are like, oh, doesn't that only happen in developing countries? Like, isn't that just like a thing right. over in Some people think you know, that. Asia or whatever? But mm-hmm. actually, the United States is actually one of the biggest, uh, specifically child sex trafficking nations in the world. Yeah, it's happening pretty much in all 50 states, probably all 50 and it's much more than people realize. Um, there's a great documentary. We've recommended it before. If you want to learn more about trafficking specifically in the United States and how it's being done, um, I Am Jane Doe. It's on Netflix, I believe. It's excellent. I think it's really important for people to learn about the Johnny Gosh case because chances are like pretty much everyone that looks at this case says that it's human trafficking. There's a ton of evidence. I mean, once you hear about it, you'll probably think that's what happened. And I think just hearing how quickly and how organized it is and how these things are done in a very methodical, professional way will help it make sense for people that are trying to wrap their mind around how someone can possibly just be snatched up out of thin air and brought into this terrible world. Their lives are pretty much over at that point when they, unless they're somehow brought out of it. Yeah. It's very rare. Yeah. I mean, it's really a a great intro to human trafficking case because it gives you an idea. Obviously since the eighties, it's evolved a lot and they've probably Mm -hmm. gotten way smarter. They're using different tools to lure people in and, you know, going to different places. I'm sure it's not, you know, as simple as doing it this way uh, as they did with Johnny Gosh as it is now. No, I just meant to see how, how common it was even back then. Sure. Yeah. You know, and how this can happen even in the picture perfect little town to this great family, you know? Yeah. And, and after you hear this case, you're like, how many other cases are out there where yeah. people have been abducted or just have gone missing or vanished into thin air that have mm-hmm. been taken by these rings? Mm-hmm. And that's what people don't realize is there's full on rings that are operating. You know, there's it's an organized crime. Mm-hmm. And there's people, you know, people with a lot of money and in prominent positions of power uh, throughout all walks of life that are involved in this. And, you know, we unfortunately, we don't know who they are. And it's really, really hard to break through these rings because they are so ruthless and they're so, Powerful. you know, they keep everything so tight and hidden. It's it's honestly really crazy that they're able to exist for as long as they do. It's yeah, it's wild. I mean, last week we talked about the U.S. Marshals, how they're looking for children that are, are wrapped mm-hmm. up in this stuff too. And they're, you know, we rarely hear about it mm-hmm. uh, in the news. Like we rarely hear about what is law enforcement doing, you know? Yeah. Even that to, big story last week in Georgia. Yeah. Um, how many kids were found? Like 39. Like yeah. Yeah. Something crazy. So yeah. And that, that didn't even make it to mainstream news that much. No. And it just shows you too, from just that 
most recent uh, discovery that local law enforcement, I mean, what are they doing? It seems like they're not even involved for the most part in in searching out human trafficking and things like mm-hmm. that. It's mostly done at a federal level. Yeah. Because uh, oftentimes they cross state lines and things like that. And I, that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, we don't hear about local agencies busting human trafficking rings and things like that. But clearly there's not enough resources is what I'm trying to say. There's not enough resources being dedicated to this monstrous epidemic that the world is facing and our country's facing. I completely agree. And that's why I think the work that Thorne is doing is so important and it's saved thousands of children so far. Yeah. The technology. Yeah. Both being rescued who are Mm -hmm. in rings and Mm -hmm. preventing those being, you know, going into them Mm -hmm. uh, through technology. Cause obviously the internet's a huge tool for them and that's their primary way of recruiting and, and, you know, getting people to come into it or, you know, getting, cause children are online now. Mm-hmm. So just keep making the internet a safer place in All general around, is what they're yeah. trying to do. So. And they do just a lot for exploitation of children in general when it comes to child photos and yeah, you know, getting that off of the internet. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, let's go ahead and dive into this case because it is a long one. It is. So we're going to begin by talking about Johnny Gosh's mother because Noreen Gosh is a huge focal point in this whole case. She's really carried the entire thing through from start to finish. She has. Um, and she's a very interesting person. She is. People have such mixed opinions on Noreen. I think because she's so unique and kind of interesting, the way she talks, she's very, I don't know, intriguing to me. I would love to interview her. I've said this since like we, the day we started this podcast is I'd love to interview Noreen Gosh one day. If you ever hear this, Noreen, and want to come on our show, we would love to have you because I just think she's, I mean, incredibly strong. We'll talk more about why. But just the way that she thinks and the way that she speaks and she's so eloquent and I don't even know how to describe her. Clearly very intelligent, clearly very, Very. I like to think she's very tapped in spiritually, even like she's very, I mean, clearly she's a spiritual person, but she is, she is just. I don't know. She's figured out how to deal with adversity mm-hmm. um, very early on in her life. And I think it's just made her a very strong person, strong willed yeah. inside and out. She's just, she carries herself in a way that I think we all wish or hope we would be like in a situation like this. Like, yeah. And I think because she's so strong, it intimidates people or they wonder how can someone that's gone through what you've gone through be so strong. Right. And that makes people suspicious Why aren't of you her weak and emotional way. all the time. Mm-hmm. Cause she's very stoic in a way. She's very like, she is, you know, but it's cause she's so tough. Yeah, exactly. She's, She's on a mission. She is. And she's going to finish her mission. She's going to mm-hmm. get to the end of this road no matter what. And tons of people have tried to stop her. But going yeah. back in her story a little bit, Noreen Gosh was uh, born and raised in eastern Iowa. And she got married at a pretty young age, I think in her 20s or so. And she had two children with her first husband. Mm-hmm. And we don't know all the details surrounding her first husband. I couldn't really find anything about names or anything like that. But her first husband apparently got cancer Mm -hmm. and two months before they died, their house got hit with a tornado because I was in tornado alley. So if you've ever dealt with tornadoes before, very, very scary stuff. Um, I've dealt with them firsthand. I lived in Oklahoma for a while. So I know how scary it is for, you know, I've never had my house hit by one. So I can only imagine what that would have been like, but it completely decimated their home. Mm hmm. And her two young children while they were in it. Yeah. Yeah. While they were in it, she's dealing with her husband's on 
you know, essentially the end of his life. He's two months away before he passes away. She has two kids. And then on top of that, they get hit with this tornado. So after the tornado hit the house, she was looking for her children because they were obviously there with her. And she ended up finding the two of them face down in the gravel and glass. And when it started raining, because I mean, they still had, she was pulling off rafters, like Mm -hmm. the house was leveled. So when it started raining, it was kind of like pelting. I mean, she said it was like torrential rainfall. I mean, huge storm. And so it was hitting them so hard that the kids started crying and screaming. And obviously she was super happy that they were because that meant they were alive. Yeah, Uh, that's intense. And then only a few weeks after this, her husband passed away and she had to start completely over by herself. That's crazy. Two young children. Yeah, by yourself. So, and she even said, she's like, that was a moment in my life where I knew that I had to either step up and be Mm -hmm. strong and continue or, you know, go down in despair and just, you know, after all that, I mean, that was a lot to deal with, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And a couple years after that, that's when she met John Gosh Sr. And they got married and that's when they had Johnny. Right. So Johnny Gosh was born on November 12th, 1969 uh, to Noreen and John Gosh Sr., and he was the youngest of their three kids because he had the two older siblings from her previous husband. Mm-hmm. But they were like much, much older um, at that point. So uh, they're not really involved in, in the story too much. But the Gosh family lived in an upper middle class suburb of West Des Moines, Iowa. And in the 1970s and early 1980s, during Johnny's childhood, it was normal for young kids to play outside. Uh, I, my parents remember playing outside and, you know, there was no worries uh, like there are now about, you know, people snatching your children and things like that. So I played outside in my childhood. You didn't at all. No, I did. But like, you know, your parents were like keeping an eye on you. You weren't like going far away from your house. You know, what I, I mean? was, I was walking around the whole neighborhood. No, no, no. But I'm saying a lot of kids would like go to the grocery store on their own or go. Oh yeah. Yeah. Go Actually, down to the I gas station. Yeah, I was going to say, did you that did that too. too. I always walked to the grocery well, store. You had a very, subway. You went around everywhere. Store. You were a. Uh, <laughs> Special case. Most yeah. parents do not let their kids. And most that. of the places I went, I didn't even have shoes on. Yeah, I know you're savage. I was a little savage. Yeah, I would say most people had to keep close to their house. Like my parents were very like paranoid about us, yeah. even just. And we lived out in the middle of nowhere, and they were still like, you know, don't don't go beyond like yeah. our friend's house, a couple houses up the street. Mm. Like they wouldn't let us just like cruise down. I feel like I'm going to be pretty protective with my kids. Definitely oh, more yeah. than I oh, had yeah. as a kid. Yeah. I'm going to be tracking them. Like I track yeah, my, we know too much. There's no way. Yeah. But I, it's just, it's scary out there, man. Yeah, I mean, it is. You don't know safe. who's out there. I agree. Even in your own I neighborhood. Agree. Absolutely. But yeah, Johnny was a very normal kid. He loved uh, dirt bikes, especially. So he would do, you know, different things to earn money. And eventually he got himself a dirt bike. Uh, but yeah, they would go out and ride their bikes and, and, be out with his friends, like, you know, no worries in the world. Back then, of course, in a neighborhood like Johnny's, no one was really concerned about crime. They felt pretty secure with their doors unlocked at night and their kids out until dark. And this is like the average, you know, neighborhood in America around this time. Yeah. Most people did think it was a lot safer in the world than it is. Yeah. Well, I think, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think it's just the access to information was way less. I think so too. So I don't think people, and plus the news was, I don't think it was as reported quite, on. Yeah. Cause it's not like human trafficking just started in you know seventies no. or eighties. No. I mean, it's been going on for a long time. It dates back really far back in history actually. Yeah. 
So in early August of 1982, Noreen and John Gosh started getting these weird phone calls, normally around 1.30 a.m., and John would answer the phone and tell the person that they had the wrong number and hang up. They didn't have caller ID. Right. So they have no idea who this person is, and they just keep calling, so you just keep telling telling them to stop calling. You have the wrong number. Um, and then on September 3rd, 1982, just a few months before Johnny's 13th birthday, he and his parents went to his brother's football game at the high school stadium. And during the game, John Gosh gave Johnny some money to go get some snacks from the concession stand, uh, which they could see from the stand. He wasn't even going that far away. And then suddenly when he went over to do it, they looked over and he wasn't at the concession stand. They couldn't see him anywhere, actually. So John went to go find him. And he found his son talking to a police officer under the bleachers. Okay, think about that for a second. Yeah. under the ble- If you've ever been to like a high school football game, to go yeah. under the bleachers is a weird thing. And With why a would a cop be under the bleachers, first of all? Fucking the weird. cop should be watching the bleachers, should be out front, or usually they're even like kind of on the field or the track mm-hmm. around the football field. No, you don't see cops like lurking in the dark with people no. hiding. Like that's sketchy yeah because usually like i mean people are just there's like usually kids like playing on the thing sometimes Mm -hmm. under there so it'd be very weird i i would say to see a police officer talking to a child under the bleachers where nobody can see them so john ended up calling out to his son to come back over but didn't actually walk up to the police officer so he didn't see who it was or anything but johnny went back to his seat with his dad and then after the game they followed the crowd out of the stadium kind of you know moving with the herd And when Johnny saw the officer that he talked to, he told his mom that he wanted to be a police officer someday. So maybe Johnny like approached him and asked him about being a police officer. And we don't know what the extent of that Mm -hmm. conversation, obviously. No, we don't. It may not have been anything sketchy at all. Right. It could have been a completely normal thing that a kid would do with a police officer. But at the same time, I'm like, it does seem a little weird. It does. I'm like, how many kids would just go approach a police officer? Yeah, If a cop was talking to my kid, under the bleachers, I would have a problem. That'd be, I'd be like, what the hell? Talk to him out near the concession stand or somewhere in public is fine, whatever. But why would you take a kid off to talk to them like alone? That's just something's weird about that. Right. And this is a point of contention for a lot of people is like, why, why did this happen at all? Is there something that this police officer knows about what happens next? So the next day, Johnny's sister came into town visiting from college with her fiance, and they had a big family dinner together. Johnny's parents planned to take him and a friend out to the lake in their boat, and Johnny was really excited. So the year before all this, Johnny had taken a job as a local paperboy delivering the Des Moines Register to his neighborhood before the sun came up. Yeah, that's when they would do it. I mean... Yeah, it doesn't really happen. Any, I guess some people still get the paper delivered. Yeah, I was we were talking about this the other day. Obviously, some people still get the paper. We have a lot of older people in our neighborhood and because they're just older houses. And I never see kids doing that anymore. No. Like, who's doing that? It's is not, that a thing? It is. They drive a car. I've seen them before. Like, it's usually just some person or like maybe that works teenagers, but it's not like a kid on a bike anymore. Huh? No, no, I don't think it's been a kid on a bike for a number of years now. I wonder if in other parts of the country and other parts of the world, maybe that they have kids. I don't on. know. I don't know. Cause like newspaper as a medium for getting information, I feel yeah, like is dying, dying out yeah. and oh, definitely. it's few it and far between. So I feel like having a kid on a bike is just not efficient now. Cause it's so few and far between that they have to go to different, you know, it's not like boom, 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 like throwing oh, to every house, you know, like saying. it would be back then. So, or maybe it's just because it's dangerous that they stopped having well, kids doing it. Cause it, normally it is in the dark. 
It's before the sun comes up. Yeah. It just kind of seems like a no brainer. Like whose idea was that at the beginning? Be like, let's have kids get up before everybody else does in the middle and walk around in the dark in the dark. Cause this has happened delivering. to multiple kids. We'll be talking oh, yeah. about another like a, boy named Eugene Yeah, in this story. So Johnny really took pride in his job. He was saving money for a dirt bike and his regular routine was to wake up before dawn, get ready for his paper route. And normally one of his parents would actually go with him and help him, which is smart. Um, but the night before, he had asked his parents to do his route alone for whatever reason. John said it would be fine, but Noreen didn't really like the idea of Johnny walking around the neighborhood by himself, especially when it was still dark outside in the early morning. So she said no. And so John told Johnny to wake him up the next day to go on his route with him. But he didn't. Johnny went upstairs, but then came back down a few minutes later, hugged his mom and told her how much he loved her, which is kind of interesting. It's almost like he had a feeling or something. That's what people think. People think there's, he may have known more about what was about to happen than we know. Maybe he was being tricked or was told something. I have no idea. And why did he want to go alone that morning? It's very odd. Maybe he was meeting that police officer or something. Mm -hmm. It's weird. Could be. But then he went to bed and then at 1.30 a.m. the phone rang like it had many other nights. You know, it's been happening since early August. So John answered the phone, but this time he didn't say it was the wrong number. Noreen actually heard him say, yeah, okay, all right. And then he hung up and she asked him who it was and he said it was the wrong number. Noreen was confused and said, you don't have a conversation with someone when it's the wrong number. But she shrugged it off and went back to sleep. Very weird. Very weird. So the next morning, Sunday, September 5th, 1982, just a few days after the football game, Johnny, who was 12 years old at the time, didn't wake up his dad as he usually did for his paper route. He went by himself, just accompanied with his little dachshund puppy named Gretchen, and he left home around 5.50 a.m. He cut through the neighbor's yard and walked two blocks east to pick up his newspapers from the paper drop at the corner of 42nd Street and Ashworth Road. As Johnny approached the corner, he was stopped by a man sitting in a late model two-tone blue car next to the paper drop. And the man had been parked out there for around 20 minutes at that point and wanted to know how to get to 86th Street, which for reference, 86th Street is a street about 20 blocks away in the Clive suburb of West Des Moines, Iowa. So that's quite a ways away. That's quite a ways away from that location. So it's a little weird that he would think, you know, somebody, a kid especially would know that location 20 blocks away. But Johnny gave him directions and the man made a U-turn onto Ashworth Road and drove off. And a few minutes later, Johnny was chatting with his friend Mike at the paper drop and the man passed by again. And this time he parked at the corner and the man leaned out the passenger side window and asked the kids collectively how to get to 86th Street. And again, Johnny tried to give the man directions. But then John Rossi, an adult neighbor who happened to come out and pick up his newspaper, uh, started to come over and Johnny approached him and he asked John Rossi, can you help? He wants to know where 86th Street is. And John agreed to go help the driver. And Johnny returned to Mike and they said something like, that man is really weird. I like, made a comment about that. In fact, his behavior was so odd that John Rossi actually believed he was on drugs. He told the Des Moines Register in 1983 that the guy was high. He said, when you're drunk, you're drowsy. He was wide awake and I could see his eyes staring into the horizon. Interesting. So maybe he was on some type of stimulant or something mm-hmm. uh, to keep himself awake or, or something like that. Or he was just, you know, high for whatever reason. But as John Rossi spoke with the driver, Johnny was loading the papers into his wagon and he began walking up 42nd Street. 
When John finished his conversation with the man, he became agitated and slid back into the driver's seat to leave. And inexplicably, he flicked his dome lights on in his car on and off three times before turning the corner and then tearing off like a bat out of hell eastbound on Ashworth Road. He then drove three blocks before turning onto 39th Street, bolting north. And then shortly after this, a 15-year-old carrier saw a tall man walk out from the shadows between two houses towards Johnny Gosh from behind as he approached the corner of Marcourt Lane. That's creepy to think about. So now we have identified there's a driver of a vehicle, and now there's an unknown man who just came out of nowhere, hiding in between two houses, walking behind Johnny. That's so scary. It really is. What's interesting to me, though, about this is I'm like, did Johnny not hear somebody walking behind him? Like, I guess he was far enough back behind Johnny that you probably didn't hear him. And he was just kind of like, you know. Yeah, I think he was like kind of creeping around. Or there's a chance that Johnny did hear him. I mean, we don't know. Yeah, yeah. So Johnny reached the end of the block and then crossed the street to park his wagon at 42nd and Marquardt, where he usually left it while delivering to Frankcrest Circle. A neighbor watched from his window as a silver Ford Fairmont rolled up and parked at the corner. But due to where his house was situated, he was unable to see Johnny behind the car. And it's unclear whether Johnny was just approaching the corner or sitting in his wagon when the car pulled up. The neighbor then turned away for a brief moment and heard a car door slam shut. And when he looked out the window, he saw the car turn left onto 42nd Street and race away. And that's the last point at which Johnny's ever seen. And this is approximately 6.06 a.m. in the morning. Nobody realized anything was wrong, though, till about 7.45 a.m. when a neighbor actually called Johnny's father, John, and asked where his paper was. He knows that, you know, normally the Gosh kid delivers it and he never showed up. Yeah, like everybody in the neighborhood knew who Mm -hmm. Johnny Gosh was. Mm -hmm. Uh, This immediately struck John Sr. as odd Johnny was known for being very responsible, took his job very seriously, and he had never skipped work once in the 13 months that he had been delivering for the Des Moines Register. He then went to Johnny's room and Johnny was not there. So he was really freaked out at that point. Now, this is a little confusing. We have read two different counts of this. And I remember the documentary saying one thing and then a lot of the articles say something different. But Some people say that their dog, Gretchen, uh, returned home on her own, like walked back to the house by herself. And in the Netflix documentary, I think that a neighbor said that he had came up and found the dachshund on the, like tied to the wagon. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a neighbor. Because if he did run away, yeah, I think it was a neighbor. I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure it was an older neighbor. Mm -hmm. But if he, you know, ran away, he probably would have taken the dog. Or return the dog. He wouldn't have just left his dog out there alone. Right. But anyway, Gretchen somehow got back to the house on her own. And that really scared the parents because they knew he wouldn't have just abandoned the yeah, dog. Yeah, I love this puppy. Yeah. Um, so they began to search the neighborhood for Johnny. And they quickly found his wagon abandoned near the corner of 42nd and Mark Hort. With the newspaper bundle still inside of it. And not one of those 37 papers had been delivered. So it happened almost immediately when he started his route. He picked up his papers and and wasn't even able to deliver the first one. Yep. So they were concerned, but not yet alarmed enough to call the police. They kind of thought maybe he did walk away or... Run off for a second. Yeah, I don't know. For whatever reason, yeah. I mean, I would have been freaked out right away. And I think Noreen, I remember her saying that like right away. It was, she was extremely worried. Well, yeah, because, well, John went out to go look first. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't think Noreen knows at this moment in time that he is not at his wagon. 
until he comes back and is like, hey, I didn't find Johnny. Mm-hmm. Got to call the police. So John went out and picked up the papers that Johnny had left in his wagon and delivered them himself before going to search the neighborhood more thoroughly, which is kind of weird. I don't know if I would. I feel like most parents wouldn't spend time worrying about the papers. Like, where the hell is my son? Yeah. Don't you think that's kind of odd? It is I understand odd. it was a different time and I don't know. I mean, it can't be good if he just left the dog and the papers in the wagon. I mean, as a parent, there's no way you'd, why would you think anything else? Yeah. I don't know. And there's, a, and again, there's a lot like of confusion priorities. about what happened this morning. I mean, mm-hmm, uh, there is. some people even say we still have no clue what happened at all. Cause again, this is like, I, this is people that were there yeah. that said that they were there. But again, we don't know, you know, for sure what happened. Cause there is definitely some different. I've seen different versions of events for what John Gosh senior actually does mm-hmm. um, around this time, but to go and deliver his papers yeah. is, you know, when your son is not with his wagon yeah, and like he's super reliable. Papers. Yeah. It's like, wouldn't you be concerned mm-hmm. and immediately like, fuck the papers. Let's yeah. find my son. But after he delivered the papers around 8.30 a.m., he did make a police report about his son being missing. This was about 45 minutes after he received the call from the neighbor. Right. So they called the police and surprisingly, the police did not hurry themselves over there at all. It took them almost an hour to get over to the house. Surprisingly. Yeah. I would say unsurprisingly. Well, yeah, unsurprisingly (laughs) to them. But I think most people, you would assume if you call the police, say, hey, my son's missing. Yeah. You know, You'd we can't find him quickly. They would rush over because mm-hmm. time is of the essence, right? Yeah. And no, it took the police almost an hour to get over there and in order to start taking statements and the Even station the, was yeah, yeah, station. 10 blocks away. Yeah. 10 blocks. Crazy. And right away, the police, the first thing they said was like, he must've ran away. Like he must be just mm-hmm. out somewhere. Maybe he went to a friend's house or something without telling anybody. Yeah. He actually asked Noreen, you know, has he ever run away before? You know, implying that maybe this is just, he's just one of those kids with mm-hmm. issues. Right. So right off the bat, Noreen had already gone and talked to all the paper boys, anybody that had had any sort of information about what had happened to Johnny that morning and what they had seen. And she put together all the witness statements for the police when they were there. And she told them right off the bat that she believed that her son had been kidnapped or abducted. And yet the police still did not believe her even after hearing, or maybe they didn't even uh, listen to the witness statements at all. Uh, they definitely didn't go and interview people on their own, uh, but they believe that Johnny was a runaway. And there's this clip of a captain from the West Des Moines Police Department actually basically stating that fact itself. There was no crime scene. Nobody saw anything that to us was an explanation for the boy's disappearance. He just vanished. The cop looked at me and he said, uh, well, has your son ever run away before? Kid never ran away. That really upset us. And they just thought, like all cops do, it's a runaway. The kid ran away. No, this kid didn't run away. He, Johnny was our paper boy. I knew him, knew his parents, been out to dinner with him. Um, Johnny would not run away. So this is when the police told John and Noreen that they would not classify their 12-year-old son as missing until he had been gone for a full 72 hours, which is wild that this was ever a thing. Um, there's I, a lot of people think that this still is the way that it is, that you have to wait 24 or 48 hours even to make a missing persons report. That is not true. If a police station ever tells you that, that's incorrect, and you can demand that they Immediate file response. A, yeah, it should be immediate, because obviously that's incredibly important to act 
as soon as possible in a missing person's case. Time is truly of the essence when it comes to missing person's cases. And you would think you would take the parent's word for it if they're like, our child would not disappear, would not just like run off without telling us. And that's Uh, what's really sad about this case is the police just were so shitty to their family and like acted like they did something wrong and were working against them. And Noreen never felt supported. No, not at all. It, because they, they just kind of like brushed it off. They were just mm-hmm. like, oh, he probably ran away. And, yeah. you know, hopefully yeah. he comes back. And, you know, we're not going to do anything for 72 hours. And Johnny's parents were just shocked and horrified by that policy. They argued that it was unlike Johnny to disappear without telling anyone. And they were absolutely certain something terrible had happened to him. They explained how he left his newspapers in his wagon just sitting outside and how he normally was a responsible kid who took this job to save up money and always delivered his papers on time. So it was just so odd. They went over all the points, you know, that he wouldn't have just left his dog there. He wouldn't have not delivered the papers, but none of that mattered to the police. They were convinced that Johnny was a runaway. They reason- And why would he run away at six in the morning? Yeah. What the hell? Why would he even go on his, again, why would he even go on his paper route if he's going to run yeah, away? And then why just, not just leave his pa- house? Yeah. Makes no sense. <laughs> I'm going to pretend like I'm going to go on my paper route. Halfway through, I'm just going to abandon ship and, and disappear. Gosh. Like nobody does that. Sometimes the police work in these cases just blows my mind. Yeah. Like what the hell is that? Well, clearly they don't have a lot of experience with dealing with no. uh, kidnappings clearly or abductions not. or any, any experience at all with that. Uh, but they reasoned that since his wagon was left undisturbed, there were no papers missing and nothing toppled over. There was no obvious signs of foul play. They said that the boy must have decided to run away and that he would just return on his own. What argument is that? That if he got kidnapped, they would have taken the papers too? The papers are there, so I don't yeah. know what the big deal is. Wouldn't they take all the evidence? They'd throw the wagon and, and the papers yeah. in the back of their vehicle with Johnny as well? Like, I have like no it, idea. It doesn't make thinking. any sense at all. It's really, just, really dumb. So after the initial meeting with the police officer that morning, again, this was early in the morning after Johnny had disappeared, the police did not return until about eight hours later, around 2 p.m. in the afternoon. And this was when an officer and a detective interviewed John and Noreen. But the detective didn't seem to believe their answers at all. And Noreen tried to give them pictures of Johnny, but the police wouldn't even take them. What the hell? What? Why? That makes no sense. Literally why? And people wonder why people question the police department so much mm-hmm. and think there's some type of cover up with this because it seemed like they literally did not want to to no. work this case at all. They didn't want to solve it. They didn't want to help. They were working against their family throughout Absolutely. the entire thing. It's truly incredible. And it's so obvious that they are too. Yeah. So because the police believed that they were looking for a runaway, they didn't investigate Johnny's disappearance as a crime. They canvassed the neighborhood asking neighbors if they had seen Johnny that morning and they searched the woods near his house as well. But they were looking for a kid hiding from his parents, not a kid who had been abducted by a stranger. So clearly not doing the best work initially. When the word started to spread that Johnny Gosh was missing, people in the community began coming together to form their own search parties. But the police put a stop to any amateur searches. Why? I do not understand this. In most cases, the community comes together and forms their own searches, especially when the police aren't doing shit. And to stop people from doing that, why? I mean, it's stuff like that that does give this whole thing a conspiracy flavor. Absolutely. It's like they they definitely didn't want them to to look. They didn't want to search. They didn't want... So odd. It's like they knew something. Yeah. So about 20 volunteers organized a search from the local park when police chief Orville Cooney arrived on the scene 
and Chief Cooney was known as an alcoholic who would eventually leave the force in disgrace. But for now, he was the man in charge. Great. And when Chief Cooney talked to the volunteers, it was clear that he had been drinking heavily that day. It was said that he stood up on top of a picnic table and used a megaphone to address the crowd. And he said, all of you people go home. This kid is nothing but a damn runaway. Which. What the hell? It's almost like hard to believe that a chief of police would do something like that. I feel like that could never happen nowadays because someone would get their phone out and film that and it would be viral on the internet. Oh, in yeah. Two seconds. Oh, yeah. They would be out of office in mm-hmm. a minute. Yeah. But nope, not in this case. So what's really interesting is a group of the volunteers actually thought that Noreen and John had sent Officer Cooney to confront the crowd. And so they went to their house to confront them. But when they got there, Noreen was shocked to hear that that had happened. And she went to the police station and demanded answers. And she wanted them to contact the FBI as well. And they refused. Because she was like, they're not going to help me. I mean, I think they realized really quickly that you got Chief Orville, Mm -hmm. who's an idiot, drunk, Mm-hmm. and you know nobody else is seemingly doing anything to help find her son so she's like call the fbi and what do we got to yeah. do to get them involved but they would not do it so she called the fbi herself and they said that they would come in a few days if the local police didn't find johnny so three days after johnny disappeared two fbi agents came to help noreen and john at their house and told them that chief cooney said that he didn't need their help so the fbi agents said that they weren't getting involved in the case at this point which happens a lot because this is still a local jurisdiction. I mean, there's still mm-hmm. nothing that would force the FBI to get involved at this point. So it was more of like, we'll come and help if the local police want help. And mm-hmm. clearly they didn't. So they got sent away. The sheriff of Dallas County, which is the next county over, told Noreen that he had sent officers to help and several local county sheriffs did the same thing. But Chief Cooney refused to help. At one point, Noreen wanted to use the National Guard helicopters to search for Johnny. But she and John were told by the governor of Iowa, Robert Ray, that they would have to pay $800 per hour to use it. And they didn't have that kind of money. And it just shows you that Noreen is literally like doing everything she possibly can or both of them are to try and find Johnny. Desperate. Mm -hmm. One positive that this case got a lot of that most don't is media coverage. And Noreen was out there trying to get help from all of the law enforcement agencies and different government entities And after they weren't helping her, the local news started picking up the stories and, you know, they started doing interviews and things like that. And actually, at one point, a TV station in Omaha actually had picked up on a news story from Des Moines that the governor had refused to allow their helicopters to be used. So they actually sent their own news helicopters in to help search for Johnny. At one point, Noreen also learned that they could have used canine search teams for free, but Chief Cooney did not allow it. She also learned quickly that she needed to write down everything about the investigation so she could remember everything. She asked officials if she could quote them and tracked everything by specific dates and times. Yeah, she did a really good job at documenting this entire case. Uh, JohnnyGosh.com has tons of that information up there as well. Uh, but that was really smart of her to do that. And as the tips came in from the media, Noreen wrote everything down and took them to the police. And when she asked Chief Cooney about the tips she had brought to him the day before or a few days before, he always told her it wasn't relevant or he didn't think it was worth following up on. Which it just shows that, I mean, they didn't want to help at all. I mean, what kind of police is going to be like, yeah, thanks for the tip, but we're not going to follow up on it. I know. Isn't that so odd? We have no clue where your son is. We have no ideas about what happened, but. I would be so angry. Don't need the tip. 
And there's actually a great clip of an interview that Noreen did early on where she actually talks about how uncooperative law enforcement was. By government agencies, well, you have to prove that child's in danger. To us, he's a runaway until you prove he's in danger. You can almost become catatonic. You can almost go into a state of mind where you don't want to talk to anybody ever again. Not trust anybody ever again. That's our boy's life. So for a long time, the police listed Johnny as a runaway in their system. It took Noreen four months to get his case reclassified as a kidnapping. Eventually, the police admitted that Johnny could have been kidnapped, but they couldn't pinpoint a motive and barely had any evidence in the case, which made it really hard. With no evidence, no motive, no suspects, the case quickly went cold. Which I don't see how they came to this conclusion that there's no evidence, no motive, no suspects, when clearly we have at least persons of interest based on the eyewitness statements from the other paper boys, Mike, uh, the neighbor, John Rossi. Mm -hmm. They clearly saw at least one vehicle. It looked like there was two Ford Fairmonts. Like there's vehicle descriptions. We knew roughly that one of the cars had a Nebraska plate on it. We knew colors. We knew like somebody saw a man come out of between two houses I know that's not enough evidence to look into this as more than a runaway. Like it is enough. It's just hard to go from that point, but yeah, it's something. I mean, there are cases where there is literally nothing. So I don't know. It's just bizarre how little they were trying. Yeah. I mean, there probably would have been a lot more if they had done a proper investigation initially. Do you think that maybe that had to do with the fact that he's a boy Like, do you think that they would have reacted differently if it was like a little girl that this happened to? I mean, that's quite possible. And I feel like there's more of a stereotype around boys to maybe run away. Maybe. I mean, I ran away as a kid. That's kind of what I'm thinking. If they're like, oh, he's just a, you know, crazy boy. Oh, boys will be boys running off. Mm. I don't know. That's just kind of because I feel like, you know, it's a lot less likely that a boy will go missing versus a girl like a lot of times it is females over males Mm -hmm. and so maybe Maybe they didn't think it was that common yeah i don't know it was also i mean pedophilia wasn't really as understood at the time by most people they didn't really understand like why someone would possibly want to you know abduct a, a boy right yeah um i just don't think people like understood that that was uh a need out no, there, they probably demand couldn't imagine in their you know at all that that would be a thing yeah mm-hmm. and it's not something that we really learn about and the media doesn't really talk about it i mean but sadly pedophilia is i mean a huge issue it's just becoming worse and worse especially in the united states honestly noreen throughout this whole investigation this whole case was absolutely frustrated by the lack of action from local police and in 1983 her and john actually asked if they could put out eight by ten posters with johnny's picture and description up in city hall to see if anyone recognized their son. And the police flat out refused the request, saying that posters of a missing child would bother visitors to the local fair. Which, if that's not the biggest bunch of bullshit you've ever heard, I don't know what is. Like, what? The law enforcement's not going to allow you to put up a missing person sign in City Hall? Again, it's stuff like that that just makes you think, Fuels the fires. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fuels those conspiracy fires, because why not? I mean... Mm -hmm. That's so weird. The police chief and the rest of the department continued to ignore John and Noreen's pleas to investigate their son's case and treat it as an abduction. What's interesting, though, is around this time, Noreen and John also started noticing that the strange early morning phone calls 
that they had been getting for about a month before Johnny disappeared had suddenly stopped. Very odd. Yeah. What's that about? Who was calling? And they actually told the police about this possible lead and they were dismissed. Unless it was the police calling or a police officer calling. God, it's just so weird. They also told investigators about how Johnny was talking to that officer at the football game. And they felt really uneasy about the conversation that had taken place under the bleachers. But that was ignored as well. Of course. I mean, it was an officer, so I highly doubt they would investigate that anyway. Noreen's desperate search for answers led her to a newspaper article published on September 24th, 1982, just two weeks after Johnny went missing. It was a story about two young girls from Des Moines who had been kidnapped and sold into sex trafficking in Omaha, Nebraska. The girls were rescued and the perpetrators had been caught. She took the story to Chief Cooney and the Des Moines Police Department, and she wanted them to look into the potential link between this case and Johnny's, but he refused. By this point, Noreen knew that Johnny had been kidnapped, and she suspected that Chief Cooney could possibly be involved. She had no other explanation for why he could be possibly refusing to investigate Johnny's case as an abduction. And I think this would be anybody, you know, if anybody's family member went missing and the chief of police is basically trying to get you to shut up and stop and leave them alone. Like you'd be very suspicious too. Not only that showing up to search parties and being like, go the fuck home. This kid ran away. Like, are you kidding me? I'd be so pissed off. And luckily this guy does end up getting removed out of office, but Mm -hmm. we still don't know whether or not he was involved or not. But at this point, Noreen decided to take matters into her own hands and called a press conference. She spoke about Johnny's case and the potential connection with the young girl's case. She also wanted to warn parents and the public so no more children would go missing. And during the press conference, she asked why the police weren't investigating the case, when clearly this kind of stuff does happen. Johnny, we love you. We're waiting for you to come home. We're doing everything in our power to get you back. And we're leaving the porch light on every night. Moms are like that. And Chief Cooney actually came to Noreen's house after this press conference and confronted her. He was furious and he screamed at her for doing this which was, it's just like, why, why do you care? Yeah. It just feeds into her view of him mm-hmm. already. It's like, this is exactly why I spoke out just against makes him you. Look like more of an asshole. Yeah. Uh, Noreen also received death threats after the press conference, which is crazy. And some person actually called her and said, if you don't stop making waves, you're dead. Which who is this? Could have even been somebody that was involved. Yeah. If, if law enforcement was involved with Johnny's abduction, Well, if they were properly investigating, maybe they could have figured out who it was that called. Yeah. Imagine that. The police told Noreen and John that they were no longer prioritizing their son's case at some point. And at one point, an investigator actually came to Noreen's office and told her that she should just have a baby to keep herself busy and forget all about Johnny. What the? Can you believe that? Just have another one. It's fine. How corrupt is this police department that their investigators are saying this? The chief is saying that? Like, Why? You got to think why. There is so much evidence Mm -hmm. here. I mean, they're it's involved like somehow, somehow you don't know exactly how, but it's just like, it makes no sense otherwise. No. And how insensitive to just be like, you can just have another one. Who would say like, that? Get can over you it. imagine just, if somebody said that in this day and age? Oh my God. That's so offensive. Noreen's boss actually overheard this conversation and stepped in and demanded that they leave immediately. It's good for him. What an asshole. At this point, the Gosh family was not getting any help from the police department at all because they clearly were corrupt. Their relationship with them has already gone to shit. And the FBI basically thought Noreen was crazy. Yeah. And, crazy? and they were like, the police department's not letting us help. So we can't do anything. Yeah. 
And they actually told Noreen that she was a loon. Remember that? Yeah. A there's, loon. Yeah. God. A loon for, for thinking that her son was sex trafficked when that's probably what happened. Following this release that we made, the FBI referred to us as loons. That is a message to America that if you try to find your child, and if you work diligently at it, you may be referred to as loons by the FBI, who are doing nothing to help the parents. So after they were told that the police would no longer be prioritizing this case, Noreen and John Gosh ended up hiring their own high-level private investigators to help find their son, including a retired detective in the NYPD, Jim Rothstein, and a retired FBI chief from Los Angeles named Ted Gunderson. What's crazy is they also had to hire a sketch artist themselves to get a composite sketch of the man witnesses saw Johnny talking to on the morning he disappeared. So again, there's evidence like they should have had the police already should have had a sketch of the individual. Yeah. Why aren't the police willing to let them use any of their resources? They're literally working against these people. It's yeah. it's absurd. Truly. They said no help from us. You got to solve this on your own. And and they were up to the challenge because they, they stepped up and, Mm-hmm. and started doing their own investigation. In December of 1982, another private investigator working on Johnny's case named Dennis Whalen traveled to Houston, Texas to actually witness a child auction, and he hoped that he would find Johnny among the children being sold into sex slavery, but he wasn't there. Oh, that's so gross. I can't imagine being at a fucking child auction. Yeah. How does Ugh. that even go on without getting shut down? If he was able to find this, how, how come it's not being shut down? He somehow knew how to seek this out and... Mm-hmm. Like, wouldn't you report that to the authorities? Like if you knew there was an auction going on, I don't know. That's all weird. I guess, you know, they're trying to find Johnny. So he doesn't want to like mm-hmm. bust in and, you know, shut it all well, it's, down. It's but huge. It's, it's more complicated than yeah, that. You know? Yeah. That's crazy. But also in 1982, it's important to note that Noreen and John Gosh established the Johnny Gosh foundation uh, with a mission of educating kids and adults about the common tactics and motives of kidnappers and child sexual predators and she's really used this foundation to become a vocal advocate um, and helps out in other other people's cases as well. Mm-hmm. Um, she's helped a lot of families, which is amazing. I think that's super, super inspiring. It really is. And in 1984, just a few years after he disappeared, Johnny became one of the first three missing kids to appear on milk cartons to raise awareness for his case, which isn't something that's done anymore. I don't know why they stopped. Seems like a really smart way to... I guess there's just so many kids. How do you pick who gets to have the spot? Who gets the spotlight? You know, that's very true. That's probably what it is. Honestly, probably. I mean, anytime you go to Walmart, they're, they're like the only store that I've seen that actually Mm -hmm. has a a big bulletin board with pictures of, of kids on it. Yeah. I don't know if that's just in Colorado or Walmart's all over the country, but the reason they probably do that is because there's so much human trafficking happening in Walmart parking lots. (laughs) That's true. They probably are like, God, we should at least be helping this if it's happening in our parking lots. Mm -hmm. That's scary, man. Yeah. So in 1984, the Johnny Gosh bill became a law in Iowa, which Noreen had really worked hard to get. The law mandated an immediate response and action from the police in cases of missing children. So none of that 72-hour bullshit. Multiple states have adopted similar laws. And yeah, like I said, I'm pretty sure... Most states, if not all states now, have gotten rid of the whole 72-hour bullshit. Noreen also testified before the Senate as well about the real and present dangers of organized pedophilia, and she said that she believed that's what led to her son's kidnapping. She boldly said that if the FBI wasn't going to investigate the cases of missing children, then a portion of their funding should be reallocated to an agency that will. That makes total sense. Yeah. 
And her testimony was a bit controversial because she named everyone that she felt failed in Johnny's case. And she spoke out specifically against the FBI. She's very brave. Yeah, absolutely. After her testimony to the U.S. Department of Justice, the DOJ allocated $10 million for the establishment of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NECMEC. So right there, that's a huge accomplishment of Noreen's. And Mm -hmm. I mean, so thankful that somebody had to step up and do this. I mean, and she... She's the right person to do it. I feel like she's she definitely built for that and really happy that she did. During all this time, there were still some potential sightings of Johnny Gosh being reported. Some tips were coming in. And at one point, a tip came in on March 2nd, 1983, where a woman reported seeing him in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She said she saw Johnny screaming for help and running away for, from two men. According to her, Johnny ran right up to her and was begging for help. And he said, please, lady, help me. My name is John David Gosh, but the men quickly caught up to him and one of the men apparently grabbed Johnny by the arm and twisted it painfully behind his back, dragging him away. And this woman reported the incident to the local police, but they dismissed it as a family situation, believing it was just a kid who was mad at his parents and pretending to be Johnny Gosh. What? Dude, I, that really, that's crazy. What, what would be the likelihood of that happening? None. Why would they, why would some kid pretend to be a missing child? And two men, I mean, I don't know, like twisting behind his back. And, and of course this lady could be making it up. There are weird people that just like want to get in on the, the drama of the case. Oh, I saw him five seconds of fame or whatever. I guess you can't even like determine if this really happened, but if it did, I mean, that could have been him. Yeah, it could have been if she's telling the truth. So like I said, the police dismissed this pretty much, but the woman did not forget about the little boy. She believed that no matter who he was, he was really in trouble and needed help. That October, she saw a TV show about another child abduction case referencing Johnny, and it showed his picture. And she was stunned because she knew that that was the same boy who had run up to her months before. So she went to police again and insisted that she had seen Johnny Gosh. And this time, Johnny's parents were notified and they enlisted the help of their private investigators who were working closely with the FBI at that point in time. And by January of 1984, they actually confirmed that the boy the woman saw was Johnny Gosh. Isn't that wild? Wow. If they had just taken that tip more seriously. Maybe they could have done something faster. Yeah. Closed in on him. Noreen and Johnny needed help financing the search, including hiring investigators, mailing flyers, and everything else that you probably have to do. So they came up with the idea to start selling candy bars with Johnny's picture on the wrapper. By early 1984, they had sold nearly 18,000 of these candy bars. Wow. So it really helped funded their whole fight. In January of 1984, a private investigator named Sam Soda contacted Noreen Gosh and wanted to help with the case. They arranged to meet at his office, and Noreen had learned by now that police would be no help. So she went alone and brought a tape recorder. Sam explained that an informant had heard about a future abduction. A young paper boy would be kidnapped from the south side of Des Moines during the second weekend of August 1984. Noreen was shocked that Sam hadn't gone to the police, and she was a little bit skeptical, but she took her tape recorder to the investigators, and they dismissed her, of course. Every time, literally Mm -hmm. every single time, Mm -hmm. Noreen brought something to law enforcement. They just dismissed it. Yeah, and even the media in this one. She tried to bring them the tape, and no one would even listen to it. It wasn't until she met Frank Santiago, who was a Des Moines Register reporter. He finally agreed to listen. 
which I kind of get to some degree because this is information coming from an informant. So mm-hmm. there's not at this point in time, there's not a way to verify right. the information. They're not just going to go public with it. Mm-hmm. But the fact that law enforcement's not at least treating it as a tip and trying to follow up on a tip is just very alarming. What's crazy is that as predicted by this mysterious informant, another young paper boy disappeared under eerily similar circumstances to Johnny. So Eugene Martin was a 13-year-old paper boy in the Des Moines area who had an early morning paper out just like Johnny Gosh did. And on August 12, 1984, Eugene was delivering papers on the south side of Des Moines around 5.30 a.m. when three witnesses saw him talking to a man as he walked along his route, just seven miles from Johnny's. They all assumed the man was the boy's father based on their body language, but then Eugene vanished, and all that was found was his sack of undelivered newspapers lying on the sidewalk. Just like Johnny. Yep. Here's a video clip of Eugene's father, Don, and the gosh parents being interviewed. You just feel completely lost. You, know, you, you don't know what to do, where to go, who to talk to. It's just like a movie being rerun, that we're watching the movie except the actors are different. Uh, Mr. Uh, Martin, did your son, Eugene, know about the Johnny Gosh case? Uh, yes, he's heard of it, and he's been aware of the story of uh, Johnny Gosh and all. Is it possible that the same person kidnapped both boys, or is that just a coincidence? It's possible. At this point, they have not determined whether there is a link between the two cases yet, but there's a great many facts that are very striking. Are you hopeful that the trail for Eugene Martin might lead to Johnny too? Yes, we are. And this time, the local police did start searching for Eugene right away, and they called in the FBI right away because it was almost like, well, maybe they learned a little something from Johnny's case, but, mm-hmm. or they just thought there was no connection. So like, all right, we'll investigate this one. But a few days after Eugene disappeared, they got a tip that he was seen in Ankeny, Iowa, which is a town about 20 minutes away from the neighborhood where he disappeared. It was the middle of the night, but the police rushed to the area and they used a spotlight equipped helicopter to search for two hours, but they ended up calling off the search right before sunrise. And very different from Johnny's case, the police did call on the community volunteers to step up and help with the search. They organized search parties in the woods in Warren County and in and around Easter Lake. They even offered a reward of $64,000 for any information that led to finding Eugene Martin or Johnny Gosh this time. Eugene's stepmother, Sue Martin, believed that the only way he would follow a stranger was if the person had politely asked for directions while Eugene was on his paper route, which sounds like what happened to Johnny. Donald Martin, Eugene's father, sat by the phone for days, weeks, months, waiting for the call that would bring his son home, but it never came. Donald and Sue had planned an elaborate 14th birthday party for Eugene, and they kept a brand new bicycle they bought him for his paper route and froze his birthday cake in hopes that he would be found soon. That's so heartbreaking. Yeah, but Eugene was never found. And even though the police seemingly responded a lot quicker to Eugene being missing, Eugene's parents did criticize the police's tactics for finding their son. The couple said they know how to handle an armed robbery or a fight, but when it comes to missing children, they don't know. The answers that would break this case wide open are laying on some police officer's desk. They are not using the information, which it definitely seems to be the case. They don't know what they're doing with missing persons cases at all. Mm -mm. And after Eugene was kidnapped, Noreen was sent a strange poster. A few other people in the community also got it as well. And on the poster was a sketch of the man talking to Johnny from the blue Ford Fairmont. And below that was another sketch of a man that looked exactly like Sam Soda, 
the private investigator who told Noreen another boy would be kidnapped the second week of August. And when you look at the actual sketch compared to a real picture of Sam Soda, boy, do they sure look alike. Yeah, they really do. That's crazy, huh? It is. How crazy would that be if they literally like were getting involved in the investigation to keep tabs on what was actually happening in order to keep the investigation away from whatever this ring they were working for. Yeah, that would be wild. It, I wouldn't be surprised if they were that organized yeah. that they were willing to, I mean, perhaps they infiltrated the police, but also this wow. private investigator uh, group that the Gosh family had. That That's crazy to think about. Cause I mean, that, that sketch looks very, very close very, to him. Yeah. The hairline, the glasses, the wrinkles around his nose. Yeah. It's like dead on even the spot under his, his lip. Yeah. That kind of shadowy. And wow. this guy had a very sketchy past. He had detailed information about child sex rings operating out of Omaha, and he was a spokesperson for stolen children are reported every day or scared, an anti-child pornography group. Sam also knew about a man who worked for the Des Moines Register who had molested at least 14 paper boys. This man was 37-year-old Frank Sikora, who was fired after Sam made his allegations public. Sam told the paper that he believed Frank Sikora had abducted Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin. He went on to say that this is a man who is in a position where he knows all the routes and all the carriers. So perhaps he would know how to, you know, when was the best time to kidnap these two. But remember, Sam Soda had predicted an abduction and it happened. So the police started watching him closely. When someone first comes in and you see that discouragement on their face, they've tried so many different products, but nothing seemed to work for them. I'm able to take that disappointment and that pain and turn it into hope. You're listening to Mallory, an art support specialist at the Goodfeet store. And they try the art supports. It's a light up moment. You see their face brighten up. They go from feeling discouraged to being happy and hopeful again. For over 25 years, the Goodfeet store and our art support specialist have been helping folks live the life they love without foot, knee, hip, or back pain getting in the way. That's why this job is so important. You're helping people, getting back into the activities that they've wanted to do for a long time, doing the things that they love to do with their Good Feet Art Supports. We're able to help them and take them from the pain to the possibilities. And I love it. The Good Feet Store is located in Fairfax, Leesburg, Rockville, Baltimore and Hunt Valley, and in Annapolis in the Annapolis Harbor Center. For more information, go to goodfeet.com. Around this time, John and Noreen started receiving threats again, as well as prank calls. And during one of these calls, a man said, why don't you drop the case before you get hurt, Mrs. Gosh? 20 minutes later, after the caller hung up, Noreen and John heard something hit their front window. And when they looked outside, they saw a man throwing rocks. In another call, a man claimed he had Johnny Gosh and demanded a $10,000 ransom. Noreen followed the man's instructions, retrieving a note from a phone booth miles from their house. The note gave further instructions to leave the money in a certain spot by 1 a.m. And Noreen and John frantically worked with the police, but they failed to organize in time. And after 1 a.m. came and went and no money was dropped off, the man called back. When Noreen picked up the phone, he said, you waited too long, lady. You won't get your kid back now. I really, oh my gosh. I wonder if that actually was a I feel legitimate like, thing, though. I feel like that was pretty fake, honestly. Like, if they really had Johnny Gosh, you think they're going to give him up for $10,000? <sighs> Yeah, I, I mean, if money's really their motive here. They they would have waited longer or yeah. done something else. In the midst of all this harassment, Noreen spoke at a press conference and explained that the police suspected three men from Des Moines 
and a pedophile in Houston of being involved in Johnny's kidnapping. However, the police did not verify this claim. She also spoke about a man who had left town, referring to Sam Soto without saying his name, actually. And after the press conference, Noreen and John didn't receive any more harassing calls or threats. However, Sam Soto eventually did come back, but there was nothing that the police could do without any hard evidence of his involvement in the case or the pedophile case. But then something very, very strange happened in connection to Johnny's case in July of 1985. A woman in Sioux City, Iowa, was shopping at her local grocery store. And after paying for her groceries, she noticed something different about a dollar bill she had gotten back as change. On the bill, written in ink, was the message, I am alive, Johnny Gosh. And the name was written as a signature. The woman took the dollar bill to the authorities and it became an important piece of evidence in Johnny's case. And John and Noreen actually took this dollar bill evidence to the public and made a press conference about it. And here's that clip. The lady called us one night about 9 o'clock at night said that she had received uh, this bill and change at a grocery store in Sioux City, Iowa. And I asked her, would you please send us the bill? I'll send you a dollar back for it. That's what she did. The signature is right. They also had handwriting analysts take a look at the dollar bill and study the writing very carefully. And it was confirmed that the signature on the dollar bill was Johnny's signature based on handwriting analysis. That's that crazy. That is crazy. Unfortunately, though, the bill was in circulation in 1974, years before Johnny was abducted, so it didn't help the police with the timeline. But obviously, Johnny was alive when he wrote the message on the bill, but we still had no way to know if he was still alive. And then in 1986, there was another abduction that had very similar characteristics to Johnny Gosh's and Eugene Martin's. On March 29, 1986, 13-year-old Mark Allen vanished from his quiet suburban neighborhood in Des Moines. Mark's parents lived in different states, and he had been living with his dad in Minnesota while his mom, younger brother, and older sister lived together in Iowa. He was a mischievous kid and got in trouble often, but he wanted to be closer to his siblings, so he moved back with mom, Nancy Allen, in Des Moines. And the day before Easter in March of 1986, Mark told his mom he was walking to a friend's house just down the street. His mom happened to be ordering pizza for her kids, and the last thing Mark said to her was, Save me some pizza, mom. I'll be hungry when I get home. He then walked out the door and waved to his mom, and when he got to the bushes, she casually waved back, assuming her son would be home in a few hours. But Mark never made it to his friend's house. And unlike Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin, no one saw Mark talking to any strange men or being followed by anyone. The last person to see him was his mother as she waved to him through the window. When Mark didn't return, Nancy frantically called the police. I'll never forget it as long as I live. The last thing he said to me as he walked out the door was, save me some pizza, Mom. I'll be hungry when I get home. And he waved when he got to the bushes, and I waved at him, and that was that, and I never saw him again. And she was met with a total lack of concern as an officer told her that they couldn't declare her son to be a missing person until he was missing for a full 48 hours. Nancy felt as though they just wanted to deny that yet another young boy had gone missing and they didn't want to cause parents to panic yet again. Law enforcement, however, says they never found a connection between the disappearances of the three local boys. So Eugene Martin, Johnny Gosh, and Mark Allen. No connection, which I find very hard yeah, to believe. I was gonna say. They're all the same age. They all look roughly about the same. Mm -hmm. They both just vanished. Mm -hmm, walking around. So I don't know. In 1988, on Valentine's Day, Noreen went out to check the mail. And in the mailbox, she found a typed letter postmarked Idaho. 
As she read it, she nearly collapsed on her front lawn. It was from Johnny. Can you imagine getting that? God. Dude. Oh my gosh. Heart stopping moment right there. And at one point in the letter, it said, I'll never be permitted to return home. They've cut my hair. They've dyed my hair. I look different. Please don't ever forget me. Love your son, Johnny Gosh. Wow. That must have been a really crazy moment for her. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? But like, I'm sure she just was so happy to get this and probably thought at first it was his, Mm -hmm. you know, from him. Yeah. But then again, maybe it wasn't Mm -hmm. because you can't verify it. People are weird. Since the letter was typed, they couldn't use handwriting analysis to verify that it was really Johnny. But Noreen said that she knew it was from Johnny. She could tell by the way that it was written, by the details that were included, and most significantly by how the letter was signed. Love your son, Johnny Gosh. When Johnny gave his family letters and cards, he always signed them this way. His parents would playfully tease him about it. They told him over and over again that he didn't need to say your son and include their last name, like it was some formal thing. But Johnny just continued to sign his name just like in the type letter. So when she saw that, she said she knew it was him. And honestly, I believe that. I do too. I believe as a parent, you would know how your child is going to write you a letter or a note or something like that. And wouldn't you be the most skeptical of something Mm -hmm. like that? Which I mean, we don't know if he typed the letter because somebody could have forced him to give, Mm -hmm. you know, the words for the letter and did it for him. I mean, it was done on a computer. So yeah, that's kind of strange. You know, if, if Johnny was free or, you know, and also, you know, if he was on the run or something, where do you get the computer? You know, why wouldn't he do a handwritten note? That'd be way easier. I feel like than. but he could have had access to a computer. I mean, we really don't know what his situation is like. Right. So now we need to talk about a man named Paul Benassi, who is a huge part of this case. And he came into the whole Johnny Gosh case in 1989. He came forward and revealed a bunch of chilling details about a local human sex trafficking cartel that was led by a prominent businessman named Lawrence E. King Jr. Lawrence had been the director of the Franklin County Credit Union in Omaha, Nebraska, and was a rising star in the Republican Party as well. He also sang. He like did like opera. Yeah. Odd, odd yeah. fellow for sure. Yeah, he definitely was. Now, we'll talk about Lawrence King more in a minute here, but at this particular time, Paul Benassi's 21 years old, and he'd actually talked about an incident involving an Iowa paperboy with a psychiatrist, and his lawyer, John DeCamp, read the transcript of this session and was stunned. He ended up researching the case of Johnny Gosh and found that the transcript's dates matched up with reports of the case. So John DeCamp decided to contact John and Noreen Gosh. John Gosh Sr. ended up taking the call and decided not to tell his wife about it just yet. Why? Yeah, I can't believe that. Yeah, I was like, what? Why would you hold any information from her? Especially, yeah. Like she can't handle it? I I don't know. That's a big question mark for me. Me too. But instead, he went to visit Paul in prison. And during the visit, Paul said, you look like it can't be the eyes. You look like Johnny Gosh. John Gosh Sr. said he believed Paul, but he decided to hire a private investigator named Roy Stevens to look into Paul's claims. So Roy ended up spending hours interviewing Paul on tape. And during these interviews, Paul said a man he called Emilio ran a kidnapping business and selling children, explicitly targeting kids from close families to inflict the most emotional pain possible. That he liked to hurt people. Yeah. And Emilio had actually kidnapped Paul when he was just a teenager and brought him to Des Moines. 
and they actually stayed the night in a local hotel. And that evening, a man came by with a picture of a young boy. Paul was told that this was the boy they were going to kidnap. Emilio and Paul woke up early in the morning in the same time as the paper boys. Emilio then drove his blue Ford Fairmont to Johnny's neighborhood with Paul in the back seat. After Emilio pulled Johnny into the car, Paul was instructed to hold him down and keep him quiet. After the abduction, Emilio forced Paul at gunpoint to molest Johnny on tape. So fucking disturbing. It really is. The private investigator, the private investigator found two people who indicated that Paul was involved in Johnny's kidnapping. Even though his lawyer, John DeCamp, believed he was telling the truth, the FBI didn't investigate Paul's claims. That's what's so crazy about this is even after all this and, and Paul Benassi coming forward, the FBI never no. investigate it. And they, neither do the local police. They never even go and talk to Paul Benassi. No, they never took him seriously, which is a shame because we'd probably know a lot more right now if they did. Yeah. Because as Paul Benassi was coming forward, other victims were starting to come forward as well. Another victim, 21-year-old Alicia Owen, came forward and corroborated Paul's story. Other allegations came out against Lawrence King, the alleged ringleader of the sex trafficking cartel, and other public figures, including throwing illicit sex parties where underage children were offered to guess. Isn't that so terrifying that that's actually real? Yeah. yeah. It's hard to believe. It is. But it is real. Multiple victims came forward and described being given drugs and alcohol and then auctioned off by Lawrence King. By 1990, the case against Lawrence King was heard by the Douglas County Omaha Grand Jury, and they found Paul's story to be a carefully crafted hoax. Hmm. That's just wild. Yeah, it really is. It's so sad. Imagine coming forward with something like that. And why would he? Yeah. Why? Why he would has anyone- serious issues because of what he went through too? Yeah, and multiple personality disorder, mm-hmm. right? Already, he so. does. Which I'm not sure if that's something he developed before he was kidnapped or yeah. during that. I'm not quite sure, but yeah, he really struggles with that. But it's kind of interesting how that works with Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, he like recalls information from what happened with Johnny or at different points in his life by bringing up his different personalities. So he'll literally put his head down during an interview and when he puts it back up, he's a, you know, a different one of his personalities or identities. And that's how he's able to recall all these different memories, but it can only happen when he's in. That's really interesting. You know, you know in that identity, I hope yeah. that's the right terminology. I don't know well, that I mean, much about some, the ID, yeah. but it's, it's just really interesting. And you know, it's used as a, coping mechanism for people that go through trauma. That's why these personalities or identities are created for them to protect themselves. Yeah. yeah. Which makes sense. Yeah. And Paul's Paul Especially really has been through a lot. He's been I feel through. Really, yeah. really terrible for him. Yeah. That's crazy. And be, he was forced to do a lot of bad things. Right. Said. Yeah. What's crazy though, is that both Alicia and Paul ended up being indicted on charges of perjury. But since Paul was already serving time for child sex abuse, his charges were dropped. But Alicia was found guilty and sentenced to nine to 15 years in prison. It's just crazy just for coming forward in the Lawrence King case. And while Lawrence King was never charged with sex trafficking, he and several other officers of the Franklin County Credit Union were indicted for embezzlement and fraud. Lawrence had embezzled almost $40 million and spent 15 years behind bars for that. That's crazy. He didn't get any sex trafficking charges after all that. Yeah. And then to punish the victims for coming forward. How sad. Yeah. And disgraceful. Paul tried to file a civil suit against Lawrence, but Lawrence didn't respond. And Paul was awarded $1 million in damages 
on February 27, 1999, but that was never paid out by Lawrence King. Mm-mm. So since John Gosh Sr. did not tell Noreen right away about Paul Benassi, she didn't know anything about him until March of 1991. When she was contacted by Roy Stevens, the private investigator, who then showed her the tapes of his interviews with Paul. It is only through these personalities that he remembers the day he helped kidnap Johnny Gosh. Every time he would put his head down and call up somebody, it seemed authentic. It seemed to me that he couldn't fake that. This guy probably wasn't capable of coming up with all these voices and all these different things to say. Banasi can call forth his alter egos at will. First to emerge, Mark Anderson, 15 years old. All I remember him talking about was that this was the boy that they were going one of the boys they were going to take. Paul says a Des Moines accomplice snuck up from behind as the abduction was made. Benassi did his part, chloroforming Johnny. I held him down for a second. I put this thing that Emilio told me to over his face, and he, um, a few seconds later, he went out. What's so weird is John Gosh is in those tapes, and he's sitting in the chair looking bored, and he even fell asleep at one point, which was just shocking. And Noreen was shocked. And Noreen was just really surprised that her husband had kept this from her for so long. Yeah, and rightfully so. I'm sure she's like, what the hell? Why? Yeah, and eventually they did get divorced. They did. So clearly they're they're on different pages maybe about what had happened to him or something like yeah. that. And maybe that's why he kept that from her for so long. Or maybe, you know, like I think he said it was to protect her. But I don't know. Yeah, that's very odd to me. But once Noreen did find out about Paul, she and John decided that they wanted to figure out if he was telling the truth. So they asked Paul to look at pictures of about 12 men and asked him if he knew any of them to be involved with Johnny's kidnapping or in the child sex ring. And one of the pictures was of a man that John and Noreen had already suspected. Paul picked the suspected man's picture and said that he was the man who had come to the hotel the night before Johnny's kidnapping to show him a picture of their target. And he also said he knew the man's name. It was Sam Soda, the private investigator who had predicted the kidnapping of Eugene Martin. That's wild. Isn't that? I mean, I I can't believe that Sam Soda never gets talked, as far as we know, never gets talked to by law enforcement or even looked into as a person. Like, there's not even a person of interest Mm -hmm. when it's because they literally threw out everything Paul said. So everything Paul is saying right now is complete bullshit. It's it's all made up. Yeah, to law enforcement. Carefully and, crafted hoax. Yeah, it's like what? Yeah, that makes no. This absolutely makes a, no sense. The description. Go back to the yeah. physical description. It literally fits him perfectly as one of the people involved. So a few months later, in October of 1991, Paul told John and Noreen the whole story. And there's actually video clips of Noreen meeting with Paul, which is crazy. He didn't even know that he was going to be meeting with her. She. He just like was told, you know, you have a guest here, and then they're like, by the way, this is Johnny Gosh's mom. Yeah. And he instantly is like so emotional. You can tell he's just like overtaken yep. with guilt. Feels bad. So Paul tells them that another man had come to the hotel the night before Johnny was abducted. And this man was called Tony. The men looked at several pictures of young paper boys and decided on Johnny because he was likely to bring in the most money. While in the backseat of the Ford Fairmont, Paul said he held down Johnny and used chloroform to knock him out. Johnny was then transferred to another car in a van and the other drivers were Tony and Sam Soda. While Johnny was unconscious, they all stopped for a drink before driving to Sioux City. There, Johnny was locked in a windowless room in a farmhouse for a week or more. After that, he was taken to Colorado. John and Noreen believed Paul. He knew things about Johnny that had never been publicized and details about the kidnapping 
that were never released by the police, which some of those things included the fact that Johnny had a stutter whenever he was agitated or nervous. Also, Paul described other identifying characteristics, including a scar on his tongue and a scar on his lower leg from a burn, which had not been released to the public. He also knew about the birthmark on Johnny's chest, but that had been disclosed to the public. Paul knew that Noreen was a yoga instructor and also used to take Johnny to work with her. That was the one that I found really like legit was the fact that he t- like Johnny talked about yoga and yeah. knowing how to do yoga mm-hmm. and, and Paul had to was stay like, calm yoga. What's that? Mm-hmm. And he said he learned it from his mom. Yeah. That and the, the scar in his tongue. It's pretty like, how would you know that unless yeah. you were actually physically with him? I just don't understand how the police weren't taking him seriously with all of that. Yeah. Well, they never even got to hear that. I'm pretty sure. Like they mm-hmm. never even knew that no. Paul knew that because they never, he's just making like making shit up is what the police are saying. Yeah. When Ossie first surfaced, I needed some time before I could go to the prison and sit down and meet with him. I could have strangled him, but I also knew that he had been forced to do it. He had been a victim also. He fills out a consent form, not knowing who this woman is. Mrs. Cash wanted to talk to you. Just tell me what happened, please. I feel so bad about it because what they made me do. Banasi drew a map of the clan. A replica of one drawn by the kidnappers. Noreen Gosh says this X marks the exact spot of the abduction. A neighbor in Johnny's neighborhood had seen someone take his picture one day when he was walking home from school and came forward after the kidnapping. The police didn't release this information, but Paul knew about it. Investigators have also verified Paul's claim that multiple cars were involved in Johnny's abduction, which that was uh, that was pretty obvious. I mean, there was two clear, you know, two Ford Fairmonts that were. One was blue, one was uh, black and white that were used in the abduction. But again, FBI and West Des Moines Police Department refused to speak with Paul or follow up on any of the tips that he's given. And at first, the investigators didn't believe that Johnny could have ever been taken to Colorado, as Paul had said. But in 1991, a message was discovered on a bathroom wall in red nail polish at a Denver restaurant. The message said, Johnny Gosh was here. Paul had been with Johnny and another boy the day he wrote that on the wall. And he was able to describe the restaurant and explain that they were painting their nails in the bathroom when Johnny wrote the message, which how would you, how would you know that? How do you fake that? I wonder what restaurant it was. Yeah, I know. I wonder what restaurant it was too. I don't think it's out there. It's not out there. I don't think. It's not too late to make someone's holiday season a special one. Start now as an Amazon delivery station warehouse associate to earn some extra money for the holidays. You'd help bring joy to thousands near you by preparing packages and loading them up for their final delivery. With night and early morning shifts available through the new year, you'd also have the flexibility to spend time with your loved ones. To start as a delivery station associate, go to Amazon.com slash holiday work. Amazon is a proud equal opportunity employer. 1992 America's most wanted actually featured an episode on Johnny gosh and John Walsh actually had Paul take them to the house where him and Johnny were held in Colorado. This was really, really crazy because to actually see what they went through and where they were being held was just really, really mind blowing. I feel like to even try to wrap your head around what, what kind of life that would be. And just the emotion that it triggered in Paul is yeah. incredibly sad to watch that clip of him going back there. And clearly Paul was there at this house. Oh yeah. yeah. Because he, he knew the whole place. He knew where the entrance to the dugout area mm-hmm. under the house was. They literally dug out this kind of like cavern underneath the house where 
when the police would come to the house, they would put the children down into this area. Yep. Uh, and they even found like initials carved into the, the wood beams that were down there, which yeah. is crazy. Very sad. And again, even after all this, the police never followed up on any of this. They kept us here and I almost couldn't do it to even go near the house because I got up there and I just, the memories flooded back of the last time I was here. Two years ago, a convicted child molester surfaced and said he helped kidnap Johnny. Bossy claims that an organized ring of pedophiles abducts children and forces them into a life of child pornography and prostitution. We didn't know who we were going after and we had a missing child who'd been missing for 10 years. And the FBI was waving us off right from the very beginning saying these are not credible witnesses, we don't believe this information is valid. So we went into it pretty skeptically, particularly when you have a character like Paul Bonacci who was clearly suffering from multiple personality disorder, who had huge credibility issues, and who had been in prison. This was really interesting to me though, was that in this documentary that we've referenced in this, Who Took Johnny?, uh, that's actually on Amazon Prime now if you want to watch it. The producers actually go to the FBI, get an interview with an agent of the child abduction unit, and he's on camera, and here's what he had to say. familiar with the Johnny Gotch case. Uh, he was an Iowa paperboy who disappeared 30 years ago. I am not personally familiar with that case. <clears throat> but do you know about it? We agree that we wouldn't talk about the Johnny Gosh case at all. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Why do you think the FBI won't comment on the Johnny Gosh case? I get that it's an open case still, but why won't they even say anything about it? And as soon as the producer asked the FBI agent about it, he like, you could tell he got like all flustered. And then whoever their PR person was like, we will not be answering anything mm-hmm. about Johnny Gosh. Like, yeah. And in such a defensive way too. Which really just makes me so angry. I mean, we as taxpayers are paying for them, you know, to do their job. We should be able to ask anything that we want, especially about a missing child from this country. Yeah. I mean, it's just absurd. And they could have they just given a it. they could have just given a generic answer like to Like at this time there we can't say anything. There's no new leads in the case, but we hope that one day we can solve it. Something like that. But why are you acting so sketchy? Yeah. He literally looked like he like gulped and was like Yeah. Yeah. It's almost it like they know something. I mean, maybe it's because it's so obviously trafficking that they don't want to deal with it. Or, I mean, I don't, I really don't know why everyone has worked against them and no one wants to seem to touch this case. No. Like, it's just odd. They're trying to still act like Johnny Gosh just vanished into mm-hmm. thin air and poof, he was gone. And there's nothing yeah. out there. There's no leads, no nothing that points us in any direction to mm-hmm. where Johnny Gosh is or what happened to him, which just is. So I think that's what makes this case so maddening is the fact mm. that we do have all this and yet they they say there's nothing. Yeah. And it's just the lack of like urgency from the police or care for the case in any type of way. We just don't seem to really be that concerned. So while Paul was in prison, he received some letters from people he knew from the illegal sex ring and it referenced someone named JG, Johnny Gosh. In a letter from the third boy who had been at the restaurant in Denver, he said, I remember the restaurant in Colorado. We painted our nails and I wrote on the wall with JG. Other letters talk about Emilio and someone called the Colonel. 
and refer to other kidnapped boys as well, including Mark Allen and Eugene Martin. Wow. What are the chances of that? Like, who's going through all this effort to create this Mm -hmm. elaborate hoax? Just to fuck with people. Just to fuck with people about something so serious. No way. There's no way in hell that that's real. The colonel was the codename, allegedly, for Michael Aquino, a political scientist, military officer, and an ordained satanic priest in Anton LaVey's Church of Satan. In 1975, he separated from the satanic church to form his own, called the Temple of Set. Always a fun person when they go and make their own religion. I know, right? They're super stable. Which, and also, you know, as I've said many times on my other show, Lights Out, that with Satanism, you know, a lot of people that end, you know, start out in the satanic or the church of Satan or the satanic temple end up leaving it because they're bad eggs and they go form their own version Mm -hmm. of Satanism where things get very, very dark and can oftentimes get very violent very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because as a whole, as far as we know, the church of Satan is not, you know, involved Mm -hmm. in sex trafficking or anything like that, as far as we know. So doesn't surprise me that this individual who in these letters, the Colonel could be, you know, somehow running an extreme form of Satanism with all this, which is interesting. So they were involved in a lot of court cases over the years uh, for various different reasons. I mean, there was lawsuits, there was all sorts of things, you know, people were making threats, uh, saying slanderous things about them. It, It was a constant fight with the public really. And, you know, people's opinions of, the goshes and they became very controversial. Yeah. Well, it's because Noreen was out there like Mm -hmm. fighting against the system and, you know, was so public about, Mm -hmm. about everything and and how she felt about the case. So it it makes sense. So, so Noreen was testifying in court about something. And while she was under oath, she was asked if she had ever seen Johnny. And this is when she decided that she had to come forward because she was under oath that she had seen Johnny and had a meeting with him. He had actually come to her house a few years prior. And this was just insane to everybody like in the courtroom. I mean, what you've seen him. He came to the house like, Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, this like never happens. I mean, you never hear about this Mm -hmm. at all. And she said before they even got home, they were already getting media inquiries about this. She said that in March of 1997, her son came and visited her in the middle of the night she claimed that it was 2.30 in the morning and that he came and knocked on her apartment door and that he had another young man with him. And there's actually a great clip of her talking about this very moment. So we'll play that. There was a knock on my door, a persistent knocking. And I went to the door and I could see a young man standing out there. And I kept looking at his eyes. And the eyes don't change. And so I said, who is it? And I said, it's me, Mom. She said that Johnny's hair was straight and dyed jet black and came all the way down to his shoulders. He had a coat on over a t-shirt and jeans. So clearly disguised. Mm -hmm. I mean, from that description, Mm -hmm. it sounds like he, you know, was trying to assume another identity. She said at this point he was 27 years old and that she talked to him for a little while, almost two hours. Johnny had seen his mother on a talk show telling him that he could contact her and that she hoped that he would. She did a lot of different talk shows she over did. the years. Yeah, she went on all like the major shows, pretty much. She took any media opportunity that she could. She recognized Johnny right away, and he confirmed his identity by showing her the birthmark on his chest. 
Noreen didn't find out much about her son's adult life, but he confirmed everything that Paul had said about his kidnapping. He told Noreen that he was abducted into an underground pedophile and sex trafficking organization. And when he was too old to be of use, he was thrown into the streets. And with nowhere to go and in constant fear that they would return to kill the witness of their crimes, he was forced to live under a fake identity. He explained that it was too dangerous to come home to his parents, fearing for his own life and the lives of his loved ones, which makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you also have to remember that, you know, she could have lied. She could have withheld this from the public and you yeah, know, and just lied under oath, lied under oath. Mm-hmm. She Said absolutely no. could have did that. Yeah. I mean, this is a pretty major thing. So the mm-hmm. fact that she was like, all right, I'm not going to lie under oath. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be forthcoming. I know that this is going to blow things up for her. You know, this is going to create a lot of buzz, but I'm going to do it because this is the truth about what happened. And I'm pretty sure that's exactly how she explains it. Yeah. And, you know, of course, people were critical of the fact that it took her so long to come forward with this. But, um, you know, obviously he had asked her not to tell anyone. Why would you do that? If your son tells you I'm in danger and you could possibly put me in more danger if you tell anyone about this, wouldn't you keep it a secret? Absolutely. Maybe she just felt like enough time had passed that she could say that this had happened, that he'd be gone, far gone and well-established by now. Right. That it was okay. And and maybe she'd hoped it would get some movement going. Right. We'll also look at the flip side too. Mm-hmm. Look at her experience with law enforcement. They haven't done shit. Right. She so what trust is, them. why would she bring that information Absolutely. to them in the first place? They'd probably just laugh at her and be like, yeah, right. He came to your, mm-hmm. your door in the middle of the night. You're insane. And You're that's, a loon. that's how some people still see her. It's really sad. It's like, why would she make this up? Why? And it makes complete sense. I mean, first of all, you know, like we talked about with Paul, he talked about how prominent people in positions of power in businesses in the government, maybe even law enforcement are involved in yep. this sex trafficking, child pornography ring, whatever you want to call it, they're involved with it. So it makes complete sense. These people are going to do whatever they have to do in order to eliminate people that might expose them. I mean, look at the recent news, look at Jeffrey Epstein, look at, look at everything that's happened lately. It's not only could they expose someone who's high profile, which is obviously a huge concern for them, but also just anyone, you know, this is highly illegal. No one wants to get caught you know, paying for children through human trafficking. Right. So, yeah, I mean, obviously they don't want people going out and living back in the normal world and going back to their families or possibly going to the police and feeding them a bunch of information. He's lucky that he made it out of there alive. He really is. Yeah, absolutely. And plus, I mean, I think there's an absolute danger on Noreen's life as well. Like if she were to come out, like these people are organized Mm -hmm. and they probably have, like hitmen working for them or people that would come take care of Noreen. Like she might just randomly get in a car accident. Like they would figure out a way to, to take her out if she's going to, you know, come forward and expose a bunch of things or yeah, he's probably also concerned for his mother's safety. Absolutely. Right. So it, I don't know. I, I don't understand the argument that, you know, we can't take any of that seriously. We can't I don't believe either. any of that story at all. What's interesting is that John Gosh Sr., Johnny's father, has said publicly that he wasn't sure if he believed his ex-wife's story. And I don't know. I don't know how I feel about John Gosh Sr. I think I think a lot yeah. of people are very suspicious about him and just, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. I can't really pinpoint anything specifically. I just think that it is odd that it seems like he is on such a different page from Noreen after all these years and everything that they have both found out. Yeah. 
that why wouldn't he believe that? And I'm curious why or what she thinks of the way he's acted. Like if she has any suspicion towards him. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not sure what she thinks about that, but Anyway, she, you know, combined with her own experience and research, published her own book, actually, in 2000. And it's called Why Johnny Can't Come Home. That's why I titled my YouTube video that after her book, um, which is interesting to think about. He literally can't come home. Yeah. I mean, she really it's really like an expose into that whole world of, you know, child sex trafficking, pornography, all of that and yeah. exposing that and the realities of it mm-hmm. and why it is so dangerous because look who's wrapped up in it. Yep. On September 1st, 2006, Noreen had another secret visitor. This time, a person left a stack of photos at her door. And one of the pictures was a man who looked like he could be dead with something around his throat. Others were pictures of young boys tied up and gagged. This poor woman. Imagine getting that on your doorstep. Oh, my God. These photos are extremely disturbing, but one of them is really important to Noreen because it was a 12-year-old boy tied up and gagged and possibly branded on his shoulder. And she believes that this boy is definitely Johnny. And she also thought the man who looked dead was one of the kidnappers um, and who had been involved with Johnny which is interesting that she thought that it was almost like they were sending her a message. I feel like Mm -hmm. by giving her whoever gave her these photos was like, look at these guys, you know, you need to watch out. Like that's wild. You could be next. I feel like it was almost a threat Mm -hmm. by, I mean, scare her into silence is what it was. I feel like. And she was able to figure out that some of these photos actually came from this child pornography site and like printed off. It's just sick that there's stuff like this out there. You know, it makes me so uncomfortable. A little over a week later, on September 13, 2006, the Des Moines police received an anonymous letter that read, Gentlemen, someone has played a reprehensible joke on a grieving mother. The photo in question is not one of her son, but of three boys in Tampa, Florida, from 1979 to 1980, just challenging each other to an escape contest. There was an investigation concerning that picture made by the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. No charges were filed and no wrongdoing was established. The lead detective on the case was named Zalva. This allegation should be easy enough to check out. And Zalva refers to a man named Nelson Zalva, who's a retired detective from Hillsborough County, Florida. Nelson worked in the sheriff's office in the 1970s and had investigated two of the photos in the late 1970s, several years before Johnny was kidnapped. When the young boys in the photos were interviewed, they all said they had willingly posed for the photos and that there was no coercion or touching. The boys were adamant that no crime had taken place. However, Nelson couldn't verify that the photos Noreen received on her doorstep were the photos he had investigated decades before. But Noreen claimed that Nelson Zalva didn't even look at the photos before dismissing a possible link to Johnny's kidnapping. While three of the boys were identified by investigators, the fourth boy never was. And that is who Noreen believed was her son, Johnny Gosh. And I guess I kind of see that because I do see some similarities there. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of make out on the chest there's a dark... Uh, kind of like a dark shadow almost. I mean, the photo's so blurry, it's hard to really make yeah. it out, but I believe she thinks that's his birthmark. Mm-hmm. The one that looks like South Africa. Uh, she said it's yep. just kind of like shaded skin. And Paul uh, Benassi also brought that up. Yeah. So there is a possibility, even though it hasn't been verified, that that photo uh, is of Johnny Gosh, in fact. Do you have a butthole? If the answer is yes, then this ad is for you. 
It's hard to believe that when we go to the bathroom in this country, most of us wipe instead of wash. For years, bidets have been available, but hideously expensive, costing thousands of dollars. The Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment is here to democratize the blessings bestowed by bidets and offer clean buttholes to everyone. Hello Tushy cleans your butt with a precise stream of fresh water for just $79. It attaches to your existing toilet, requires no electricity, or additional plumbing, and it cuts toilet paper use by 80%. So the Hello Tushy bidet pays for itself in a few months. And with every Hello Tushy bidet attachment, comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty. Join the millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now. Go to hellotushy.com slash milehire to get 10% off. This is a special offer for our listeners, so go to hellotushy.com dot com slash mile higher for ten percent off. Hellotushy dot com slash mile higher. Get those butts clean. So this is kind of interesting and you know you'll have to let us know what you think of this, but there are some people that believe that John Gosh Sr. was involved in Johnny's kidnapping in some way. Because years after Johnny was kidnapped, Noreen learned from Jim Rostein, the retired New York City police detective, that the Des Moines Police Department had been ordered to stand down the morning Johnny disappeared which is why the police didn't return to the house until two in the afternoon that day. That's also why they didn't put out an all points bulletin for the car that they had seen and why they refused to use helicopters or canine searches to look for Johnny, which that was my whole thing is like, why, why did they clearly they were like purposely not doing anything. Like they didn't do the basic things like, put out a bulletin for the cars that they had seen. They had descriptions of stuff. I know like things that would just been, have been easy to do. They didn't do. It was like they were trying to work against them Mm -hmm. and not trying to hide it either. No, it's very odd. So some have theorized that John Gosh senior could have been involved in his son's kidnapping or possibly in the illegal child sex ring. It is suspicious that he took the call in the middle of the night before Johnny disappeared and that Johnny went alone on his paper route for the first time ever when his dad usually went along. I agree with that 100%. I think it's very weird that that all happened. Yeah. During a court case in 1999, the judge asked Paul Benassi how the kidnappers knew Johnny Gosh would be alone on his paper route that morning when his father and mother always went with him. And without hesitation, Paul said, prior arrangements were made with Mr. Gosh on the phone at 1.30 in the morning, and he was told not to go on the route the next morning. Dude, what Holy the fuck? Shit. I mean, if you believe everything that Paul Benassi has said, and I mean, everything seems to check Mm -hmm. out for the most part with it, like, honestly, I I, mean, that's a big accusation for him to make. Why would he do that for no reason? Yeah. And it is like strange. Why didn't he go with him? Yeah. Why did Johnny ask him not to go? Yeah. It just makes me think about the police officer under the, the bleachers, you know, like, was he told to have his parents not come? Cause he also asked them to go alone. Yeah. Remember the night yeah, before? He did. Yeah. So what the hell? I don't know. There's definitely some connections going on there. I feel like, yeah, that's so weird. But this was also the first time that Noreen had heard this accusation against her ex-husband. Everything Paul had ever said about Johnny's case had been proven true and he never received wow. any leniency or favors for coming forward. So there's like no incentive for him to come out with all this information at all. Mm-hmm. But, but if his father did do that, let's say he did, what would be the incentive for that? Why would he, like, what would he get out of that? Was he paid off? And if so, where's all the money? Well, I don't Was think, it, it, no, I like, think 
they're saying he was involved with pedophilia. Oh, that's he's what you straight think? up involved with it. Yeah. Oh, not just being paid. No, no, no. He's straight up like I, I think that's it. yeah. He's a part of it. That's what or you participated think that's what in it. People that's are why. Saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't necessarily right. think that. I'm not saying that I mm-hmm. say that, but I think the consensus is that people think that John Gosh Senior could have could have solicited wow that or went into that world and they had you know I'm they so had dirt cu- on him on that. Yeah, I'm so curious about what Noreen would say about that. This is interesting as well, though. Noreen also learned later that John Gosh Senior frequently visited a club where Lawrence King and his criminal associates were known to recruit young men and boys into a sex ring. Wow, that's unreal. How could you do that to your own son? But people do. That's the thing. Yeah. Is there have been cases of people straight up selling their children. It gets even more shocking, though. John Gosh had brought another woman to his first meeting with Paul Benassi at the prison and claimed this woman was his wife, Noreen. That's wild. Like, what? Why? Why? That's really sketchy. (laughs) We're not done yet. Noreen also learned that at least 25 people had been introduced to this woman as John's wife. And he frequently brought her with him to meetings at the prison. That is just so so odd. There's your reasons for divorce there. Yeah. I'm sure there were many reasons for divorce. And I guess they've lost touch over the years. And he ended up leaving the area and she doesn't have any idea where he went. That's so odd. That's that's all just very strange. So what the hell? Why is there? I mean, I don't even know what you make of that. Yeah, I really don't either. I mean, I'd, I'd hate to think that he would have any involvement with his son being sold into human trafficking. That's like, it's hard to even comprehend that that type of parent could exist, that you could sell your own kid, your own flesh and blood, yeah. your DNA into something like that. But it does happen. So, of course, you have to consider it. I mean, I don't know. there's certainly not enough evidence here to say that he really did have anything to do with it. But, I mean, there's certainly enough odd things. There really is. Yeah, I mean, and this is what Paul's saying. And if Paul's all of his other information checks out, what is the yeah. possibility he's just lying about this one part? And why? why and why? What's his part? Right. Just and this is specific to, information. Yeah, very. He knows a lot. Paul knows mm-hmm. a lot. But there is one theory out there, and I don't I don't know about this one. But there's a theory that Johnny Gosh may actually be this individual now. And this this guy is named Jeff Gannon. His real name is James Guckert. 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 But this James Guckert guy or Jeff Gannon is a former male escort who's going by a fake name and somehow obtained White House press passes on a regular basis and was covering briefings for an obscure right wing news outlet. And at one point even got to question the president. Um, what's interesting about this though, is that I believe Noreen thinks there is enough credible evidence linking Jeff Gannon and Johnny gosh, her and her private investigators have insisted that they would like to get a DNA test from him. Um, she doesn't know beyond a shadow of a doubt, but they do want to DNA test this guy. So it's really interesting. This theory I, I have no idea if it has any validity to it. Probably not, I'd say. But basically, the fact that this guy was just given a press pass is is really odd. I mean, it's hard to get a press pass. They have a limited amount of people who get those. And this guy really didn't have any like 
serious credentials or any reason to be given this press pass. Yeah, but I think you could argue there's plenty of people who've gotten. I bet if we went and looked at all the people Maybe. who've been given press passes, we'd Maybe. be like, that guy got one. Like, well, he was interviewed by Bill Maher. And uh, do you have the clip? Do you want to play yeah, the clip? Yeah, I have the Let's that, just go ahead and play it. Okay. Please welcome. We've been trying to get him here for a long time. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how you doing? I'm doing great, Phil. How are you? I'm, I'm great. Thanks for the opportunity to be on the show. Thank you for being here. It's a brave thing to do because I know you've had some controversy in the past. We'll get to that. I mean, your reputation was a guy who was in the press room and people can't quite figure out why the credentials of Talon News Service, no disrespect, were enough to put you in there. It's one of the most exclusive clubs in the world, the 20 or 30 people who get to sit there and ask the leader of the free world a question directly. Why do you think you were selected for that? Well, there's uh, lots of people that have that opportunity uh, from various uh, news services. I'm a, I'm a journalist, and I was able to uh, be in the room and ask the question. But why among the thousands of journalists did they select you? I'm just asking. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. You had a, a job formerly as, a, as an escort? Uh... Well, I've, uh, there's lots of allegations out there about uh, uh, things in my past. But it came out this week, the Freedom of Information request was uh, granted, and you made three dozen visits, apparently, to the White House at times when there were no press briefings going on. On 14 occasions, the Secret Service has no record of your entry and exit time. What were you doing in the White House? So he is like, Why? how the hell do you get that pass? I mean, he's in the industry. He kind of knows. He's in the political world. It's hard to get those, and it's it's competitive. Why did he have it? And he doesn't have a good reason. So I think there's something weird going on. Is he Johnny Gosh? I don't know. I feel like he's got something he's hiding or yeah. has got some skeletons in the closet or something. Like he clearly, and he acts a little sketch about the whole thing, but I don't know. And then he was on this uh, news program. It's like a NBC, I think, yeah, or MSNBC. Something. Um, and they, the woman on it, the newscaster, um, actually, let's just go ahead and play that clip as yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Today we have the man who may know what happened to little Johnny. Some claim that former White House reporter Jeff Gannon may actually be the missing boy. The internet was abuzz with word that former White House reporter Jeff Gannon may in fact be Johnny Gosh. Similar body markings and a lack of information about Gannon's early years. I do not know if Gannon is Johnny or not. Only a DNA test would provide that information conclusively. Let's get right to the point. Are you willing to take a DNA test and settle the controversy once and for all? Yes Absol or no? Absolutely, I would definitely take a DNA test, but that isn't even necessary because there's so much evidence to uh, available to disprove these accusations. That's a yes, then. Well, you are well he's saying yes. My friend Jeff yeah, is saying yes. You know what? Yes. As a lawyer, I can, I can, smell, right. I can smell a no, 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 no. you so. got to understand something. My friend here, Jeff, who's come on our show today, didn't do anybody else's show, he's going to tell us the fact. Jeff, how old are you first off? I'm, I'm 48 years old. 48 years old. My man Johnny Gashi there would be 35 years old. Lisa, Why the numbers... Why are you numbers, avoiding the question? No, 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 no. He just said, he just said, hey, Jeff, you said you would take a DNA. I could set this whole thing up, but let's get to the point. Why all we're here for, speak, all we're here speak. for is to show that my friend Jeff is not Johnny Gosh. Jeff? There are dozens of people who have known me most of my life that uh, could... Uh, 
definitely vouch for the fact that I am not this person. Look, what happened to this, this child and the, the suffering that his mother has endured is, is a tragedy. But it's also uh, been very difficult for, for me and my family, my real mother and, and, and members of my family who have had to uh, listen to these uh, fabrications being spread uh, in newspapers, on television and uh, on the internet. Jeff, are you willing to take a DNA test, yes or no? Yes uh, or no? Yes. When I cut my finger yesterday, there was plenty of DNA available. You should have stopped by. What else you want, Lisa? Are the you man? his lawyer? No, excuse me. Excuse me. He's my friend. Let's hear from him. What did you think when you saw Noreen Gosh? Let him speak. Uh, Go ahead. Go ahead, Jeff. I feel that, that this woman is being used by people who are trying to promote themselves as being investigators when they're not. They're fabricators. You're not always telling the truth. Your name isn't what you said it was. Then the liberal blogs come out and say that there's a different story. You resign. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but can you see that people may not know that you're telling the truth here? So, I don't know. The The female caster was pushing pretty hard that she thought maybe, maybe it could be. I and I do think it's interesting that Noreen considers it. I mean, she's seen him. Yeah. If she thinks he looks similar enough yeah. to how he looks as an adult, because she's claimed she's seen him as an adult. So, I don't know. I Here's mean, the flip side, though. Okay. Why would Johnny Gosh, after everything <laughs> he's been through, so true, want to then go work, you know, as a male escort and then go get a press pass, interview the president when he's trying to hide his identity after all these years. Why would I he agree do that? that? Why would he try to go? Why would he be in such a public platform if yeah. he's in hiding? Right. Um, Cause there could be people looking for him, but I think some people see it that maybe he's involved it's still a known thing. and it's like, sure. he's part, especially if you believe the government, the people in the government are highly involved in this stuff. So he like, he's like an informant like basically. Given a job yeah. There. So I get it. I get why Noreen and their private investigators would like a DNA test from him because I think, yeah, why not uh, why? You know, roll him out? Yeah. I feel like why not just give him the DNA? But I don't know. I it is highly very weird. doubt it's him, though. I don't know, though. When you look at the age progress photo from uh, Nick Mick, it's I don't know. It looks very different from mm -hmm. Mr. Gannon, I feel like. Uh, and I feel like their, their software is pretty good at getting close to what he would look like. I mean, yeah. then again, I mean, maybe he went bald and or is bald because of his disguise or whatever but i don't know they look very different if you look at the two pictures together you know why would they risk right. such a you know he could come out at any point mm -hmm. on live tv and be like blah here's all this that's information true. that's true here's who's involved like that's too risky it's very I feel unlikely like. so yeah, I, I, I definitely lean uh definitely against that again i wish i could interview noreen because i want to know what she thinks about it more in depth me too so as of 2017, uh, last time I saw an interview with it, or maybe it was 2019, uh, the West Des Moines Police Department did say that they're still receiving tips in the case, but they have received nothing that has helped them to solve the crime. And after 35 years and all these tips and information, they still have no clue what happened to him. Even though Paul Benassi is a witness to everything. Yeah, exactly. And they could go talk to him at any yep. time. They could pick this up yep. and follow up on all this they stuff. You could probably easily verify his stories too. I mean, a lot of his claims were corroborated, you know, yeah. by things he said. Yeah. So, I mean, they're still taking tips for the case and Noreen has never stopped believing that Johnny has been abducted by human traffickers or was at one point. And she now still believes that he's alive and he very well could be, which is really weird to think about. That blows my mind thinking he could be out there just Yeah 
in normal society under a fake name, maybe wearing a disguise. Does he have a job? Like, I wonder what his life is like. He could have a family. He could have a wife. He could he have, could. you know, he could cool. be living a full blown life still. Like, I mean, obviously he's probably has a lot of, you know, psychological issues like Paul's oh, yeah. dealing with. Yeah. Um, but Paul I mean, is I, able I, to yeah, go he, on and live a life. He's married and that's true. That's true. kids and everything like you yeah. can, you know, move past all that trauma and, and live a normal you life. You can, it'd be very hard. I mean, that's obviously best case scenario yeah, that he's right. off with this family and, and yeah, it makes yeah. you feel a lot better at the end of the day, but yeah. it's very possible. He lives a lonely, very sad life, but I, I think so bad for him. But I think that hope is what Noreen holds on mm-hmm. to that. He is out there living, a yeah. living the rest of his life, despite we'll everything that's happened. And she understands that he can't come home and, mm-hmm. you know, they can't be together, but at least like in her heart, she knows that he's okay. Yeah. She said that, you know, she understands he's got to do what he's got to do to protect himself at the end of the day. That's a basic human right to protection. And he knows better than anyone else what these people are like and what they'll do to him. So right. obviously he's got to, he's got to keep a low profile as painful as that is. I mean, how hard would that be to accept that your son is out there and you're just not allowed to be with them? I mean, be I would really be hard. so angry. And I think all of her years of yoga has really helped her yeah, like seriously. come to peace. She's done yoga for 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. Teaching it. Um, so it's really, yeah. really amazing what she's been able to do. And do you ever wonder if Johnny's out there like listening to any of this? Like, has he seen his documentary? Has oh, what sure. he ever listened to this podcast? That really freaks me out. Like what yeah, if I Johnny know, right? listens to yeah, this? Crazy. Like, it, this just makes me think about how many other people are wrapped up into this, mm-hmm. this whole thing and how many other people are in, in sex trafficking in similar situations, or maybe they're thrown out from it and they're just yeah. out there living their lives. And maybe we come in contact with victims of mm-hmm. these, you know, rings all the time and just, That's you know, totally we have possible. no idea. And they're keeping these secrets because mm-hmm. they're fearful. I think at the end of the day, it's just, you know, mm-hmm. they're fearful that they will be taken out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't help but look at Jeffrey Epstein mm-hmm. and that whole thing. Like, you know, once he was compromised and there was a possibility of him coming forward with information about prominent people involved in these rings, like, or in the ring, he's, mm-hmm. he's mysteriously dead. Yeah. So I think it's all real. I think it's all, you know, no, it is a, a major, it major is. problem. It is. So if you do know something about the Johnny Gosh case that could possibly help to solve it, please send your tips to who took Johnny at gmail.com or visit johnnygosh.com. Also, if you haven't seen the documentary who took Johnny, definitely check that out. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. excellent. Yeah. Again, it's on prime video. Definitely worth watching, but yeah, that's where we'll end today's episode. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the Malahar podcast, but until next time, stay safe out there and stay woke. We work with more than 860,000 companies worldwide. That gives us a pretty good idea of how to help businesses grow stronger. Whether it's through data insights that help you make informed decisions about building a team that works better as a team. Or by keeping you ahead of thousands of changing regulations so you can keep ahead of everything else. Like building that better team. Grow stronger with ADP. HR talent, time, and payroll. 
At ADP, we work with more than 860,000 companies worldwide. That gives us a pretty good idea of how to help businesses grow stronger. Whether it's through data insights that help you make informed decisions about building a team that works better as a team. Or by keeping you ahead of thousands of changing regulations so you can keep ahead of everything else. Like building that better team. Grow stronger with ADP. HR talent, time, and payroll.